but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Server, I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is episode 157, and it's the first time we've recorded an episode well in advance and skipping an episode. It's kind of strange for us. Oh, oh, this is actually 150... This is 157. Oh. Because we're going to record 156 in the next couple of days, but this is slated for release while we're on the road, because we're going to oh, be traveling. Okay. Did uh, you know, that's interesting, because... The final Beatles album that was released was Let It Be, but Abbey Road was the final recorded one. It's I'm, like the same kind of thing. I'm glad <laughs> you just gave the listeners a front row seat to your did you knows yeah. that you subject me to on a daily basis. I've talked about this on the show before. Mm. You just hit us with one right just now. I just have so much trivial information to get out. Mm. So smart. I, hope- I said trivial. <laughs> I hope that there's stuff on here that isn't too timely so as to become obsolete and redundant by right. the time it comes out. So if something sounds a little bit, oh, well, that's a bit stale, keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> that you might be hearing this a week or so after it yes. was recorded. This is a mailbag episode, a strictly mailbag episode. We solicited questions from our listeners on Twitter as well as uh We got a couple via email as well. Thank you. Forgive us if we weren't able to include all of them. If if you submitted multiple questions, we probably picked one. And if we're unable to to answer some of those questions, perhaps it will appear on a future mailbag segment, which is the case for a couple of questions which we're able to pull from or reserves, if you will. We went back in time. Yeah. We're going to start the show with a question that I'm going to ask you. You Mm. don't know what the question is. And then we're going to end the show with you asking me a question. Again, I don't know that the, the topic at hand. Right. It's going to get a little bit serious right away. <laughs> <laughs> and I need you to open your heart to answer this. So, as you know, we have a very, uh, I would say, sociopolitical slant to this show. Mm. And something that I've... I don't know how much we've talked about this privately, but it's something that I've thought about for a while now. And I think this is a good time for you to address it on the show. A little bit of a, a double standard, a little bit of a blind spot, shall we say. Your never-ending love affair with Joe Wilfred Songa, and how you square that with his previous sexist comments. Specifically back, I guess, in, I think, 2013, I want to say. He was asked something along the lines of, why is it that men's tennis have players able to dominate more than on the women's tour? And his response was... That, I mean, it's just about hormones and all this stuff. We don't have all these bad things, so we're physically in good shape every time and you are not. Which, as you can imagine, is asinine and uh, really bad. It it helps perpetuate this stereotype, this sexist idea that hinders women in all workplaces, frankly. That they aren't up to snuff and aren't able to to perform at the same level as men because of their hormones. We have talked about this on this show before. We have? A long time ago, yeah. Um, it's, what, what can I say? It's a, it was a deeply stupid thing. It's embarrassing. Uh, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot to say, to be honest, because I didn't prepare for this question. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you if you wanted mm. to know the question ahead of time, and you said no. That's true. No, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and try to rationalize and justify what he said. It was awful, and it is definitely at odds with a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show and what we believe and try to practice in our real lives. So I'm not going to ignore it, Mm -hmm. but... It wasn't enough for cancellation. It wasn't enough for cancellation, no. And, I mean, the thing is, like, our faves, Rafa included, repeatedly say stuff that are, to me, more offensive than that. I think, like... For example, Rafa's kind of above-it-all reaction to being asked about equal pay many times is more offensive than that. 
because it's just like, well, I don't care. Stop asking me. I'm tired of it. It's like, well, oh, if you're tired of it, then then you should have just said that. As opposed to something that's coming from a place of likely pure ignorance. Incredible ignorance. Yes. But has he gotten into hot water since then? I don't think so. I don't know if his thinking has evolved or he's just learned to shut up. Mm -hmm. We talked about this on the previous episode that a lot of folks are able to put aside issues with their faves because of thirst. Right. Right. And in this case, would you say that that's partially accurate? Sure. Like if he was an ugly dude, maybe I wouldn't be so forgiving. Or if he wasn't like more generally, I would say like a net positive for the sport. He's just a likable, charismatic person. And that definitely smooths over that, that rough edge. Definitely. Like it's hard not to like him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you think that you have answered this question in full that when you go back and you're editing, you'll be like, okay, that's fine. Or, well, fuck, I wish I'd said no, something else. Probably not. <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be people listening who are like, well, that was a terrible answer. Or that sounds hypocritical. But I'll, I don't know. What can I say? Like, we are imperfect. <laughs> Will I be getting shit from you down the road for putting you in this no, spot? No, because we already talked about this on the show before. Okay. I, I must have missed that. Mm. Moving on. So as to not really burden ourselves in this process. And our and, listeners. And uh, bog down this recording with some like bad energy between us on air, possibly. Mm. Let's cleanse it a little bit. We got this fabulous question from Tuan at Del Sarto 13. This was from last summer, like the last round of mailbag questions. What are your three favorite pop duets? If you look at my agenda here, I have eight or nine. Actually, and I guessed a lot of yours. Yeah, because you did yours first, and I sat down with the agenda, and I was making notes. It's like, oh, I haven't done this part yet. And I'm da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, thinking. And then you go, well, I know what the first one is. And you guessed it right after Mm. I'd written Aretha. (laughs) And then I'm thinking again, and you guessed the second one right after I'd written the first word. It was crazy. And the second one wasn't that obvious. The first one was, but the second one wasn't. <laughs> so let's start with mine. Really, any of the Donny Hathaway, Roberta Flack duets I, I love. The one that I chose to put on the list is Where is the Love, which is probably the most, the, the biggest hit single that they recorded together in the early 70s. Uh, one Sweet Day, because we are 90s kids, we are older millennials, and that was the song, Mariah and Boys to Men. And finally, I have a tie, because I, I really can't pick between these two. Ain't No Mountain High Enough, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, and they too have a bunch of songs that could have come on the list. And the recording of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me with Sir Elton and George Michael. Good choices. I totally refuse to pick just three. I wasn't even going to try and <laughs> rank them, because... This is my wheelhouse. And a lot of these duets, duets were very popular in the 1980s. Oh, yeah. And you, and you always schmaltzy pop tell songs. me about how my taste in schmaltzy pop music is shit. <laughs> and that I love 80s music too much. But this is my bag. This is my lane. Mm. No, number one, Aretha and George Michael, I knew you were waiting. It gives me so much joy. I've probably said that on this podcast before. The other one that you guessed was Tell Him, Celine and Barbara Streisand. Mm-hmm. It's everything. From The Mirror Has Two Faces, right? Also, Celine's Let's Talk About Love album. Oh. The Boy Is Mine. Talk about a 90s duet. How did I... How did you forget that? Oh my God. That is quintessential us. That is our duet. Who's our? Not as in you and I, but our generation. That's true. That is our song. So are you Brandy or Monica? In the video... Whose song do you think it is? Because this started a 20-year feud between the two. No, Brandy's mad as hell still to this day. Yeah, Something about crediting and not... Back in the 90s, it was a very big thing where people were watching each other's liner notes. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, the album thing was a huge thing because Monica named her album The Boy's Mine and Brandy was like, well, hold up. This is my idea. This mm-hmm. is my song. Like, what's going on? By the way, we saw Brandy this year at Pride in Toronto, and she sounded amazing. No More Tears, Enough is Enough, Barbara Streisand and Donna Summer. 
Enough is enough oh, is enough. Right, I right. can't go on. A whole new world? Come on. Oh, That's right one. up your alley. Mm-hmm. That was like a high school sing-along song for us. A little bit more obscure for me, After All, by Peter Cetera and Cher. <laughs> yes. Love that. Uh-huh. Don't Know Much, Linda Ronstadt and Aaron Neville. Oh my, seriously? Love it. Really? I don't know much. But I don't know about And uh, Endless Love by not... Which one? Not Miss Diana and Lionel Richie, but Mariah Luther. Ooh. Listen, the original, the original is very good, but the remake was butter. Those two voices were made to sing together, and you listen to them harmonize. It's it's unreal. And if you want to watch a piece of pop music history, watch their only live performance of that song at Luther's concert. He brings Mariah out, and he does this big elaborate introduction for her out of the stars Mm -hmm. from nowhere comes a dream and her name is mariah and she comes out on stage and they spend very little time together in the middle of the stage Mm. at one point they separate and go each other go away from each other to opposite ends of the stage and they're just giving it to each other and then they meet back up in the end mariah's so unbothered by it all in 1993, 1994, in her pomp, knowing that she can do that live, and totally unconcerned that she has the great Luther right. Vandross. Like the voice of a generation. You know, like a young star in that situation should be cowed by the mm. fact that you have to sing up to scratch with this legendary vocalist. You know, and they're both, they're super confident just letting it fly, and it's it's everything. While these two aren't, my Wait, there's more? F- there's two more. <laughs> While these two aren't my, my all-time favorites, I have to mention them because James Ingram was one of my first loves as a male vocalist growing mm-hmm. up, and he recently died. And I want to pay tribute to him because I think he's one of the most underrated vocalists in history, swallowed up by that large field of male pop R&B vocalists mm-hmm. in the 80s into the 90s. And he had two duets, one with Linda Ronstadt, who was very (laughs) prominent in these duets in the 80s. He sang Somewhere Out There with her, which was on the Fievel Goes West soundtrack. Oh my God, I love that song. Exactly, yeah. And I grew up with that, that, Mm. uh, what do you call VHS. Oh, I had the the first one, An American Tale. It may have been that. That's like the City Mouse one. No, but you're right. It was Somewhere Out There is from Fievel Goes West. And then the other one is How Do You Keep the Music Playing, which he sang with Patty Austin, who also did a lot of duets in the 80s. Oh, I don't know that one. I can't. I will not try and sing that one on yeah. air, but <laughs> you probably won't like we it. We all thank you. <laughs> Good question. This next question from Stuart Mascheter. I I hope I'm pronouncing names correctly here. At Top Smash, he asks, "Who is the player you most disagree on? Is there any player that one of you is a big fan of and the other not keen on at all?" We flagged this in the first round because I love the question. Um, it's a it's a wonderful question, but it was really tough to answer because we sadly agree on a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just known each other for a long time, and our tastes align on, on a lot of things tennis. So it was tough to figure out like where did we diverge. And I think so, in the '90s that would have been more obvious. Yes, and when we were younger and more petty, I think. <laughs> more? Can you imagine? Ish. Me? We've mellowed, petty? we've mellowed with age, I think. You said, you told me the other day you worry about what's going to come out of my mouth at any given moment, which I took as a compliment. I mean, that's never going to change. <laughs> <laughs> you are who you are. <laughs> In theory, this was a brilliant question, because if you think of the setup of this show, you know, like we are, we are selling our relationship on this show as well, right? That's part of the shtick and the gig. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just two dudes hosting a tennis podcast. Like, we live with each other, we're in a relationship, whatever, blah, blah, blah. A long one at this point. So, like, right. it's it's a great question. It just so happens that it, it didn't really work <laughs> in the way it was set up. It's more a case of who are you lukewarm on that the other person just doesn't really like. It's not, there's not two polar opposites. It's mm-hmm. not like you right, love somebody right. and the other person hates the, the person. It doesn't work like that for us. And in this case, it's more like, who am I lukewarm and you hate? <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is someone who I started out as a fan of. 
And well, I really tried to stan. It never like it never really ignited, but I was a fan of this person. No, you were you were going hard for a while. And then it just went in the opposite direction. This might have been And it wasn't right... like a like one thing, mm. but it was just like I I got less and less interested. And this person is Simona Hella. Yeah, I think you were you were a stanner on the train to standum before we started the show. Yes. And then slowly. In 2014. Uh-huh. Because I was really impressed. The French Open final. With that French Open final. I was excited at, like, the kind of power that she got on her backhand, despite being so small. And then, I don't know, little things just sort of chipped away at my like mm-hmm. for Simona. And there are things... Not that I dislike her. There are things that I dislike about... Uh, stuff that she said. For example, the equal prize money yeah. stuff is horrible. Right? Just a, t- a fumble. And so I'm less of a fan of her per se and her her persona publicly than I am of her game. It's where it's one of the few players that I've come to l- appreciate later in their career, their games. Mm-hmm. Like her match against Kerber at the Australian Open, that's where it was cemented for me. Like that was some of the most fun I've had watching tennis in a while. But still, again, mm-hmm. lukewarm. And I'm at a place where I don't, I don't like watching the game. Her game. Her game. Um, this may be news to you, but I'm not really that big a fan of Songo. Oh my god. How dare you? I know. I feel like this has been a secret that I've kept from you. I mean, I, I guess I don't, I don't dislike him, but I don't. He's not a fave for me. I don't enjoy watching his game. Mm-hmm. It's not fun. Like his backhand is horrible. Is that your, he does is that things, the goal of this episode? To like is piss to, you off? Is to like tear down Songo <laughs> and convince me that it's not worth it? <laughs> like it's not worth the. Uh, the moral uncertainty. This is just me getting my cards out on the table. Okay. See, the question did elicit something. It did. I just don't think he does anything well enough for me to stand. Well, and I don't also like kind I don't of over the hill. thirst the way you do mm-hmm. about songs. Okay. So there's that. Two young up, up and comers. This yeah. is something that could ebb and flow for a while going forward. I'm lukewarm on Shapovalov. You are not. I'm not a fan. Not a fan. Same for me with Tsitsipas. I started a fan. (laughs) Here's the thing. Again, a totally personal thing. I realized that I just don't really like most one-handed backhands. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of tennis fans, I would say most tennis fans, find them aesthetically pleasing and uh, like a signifier of some some higher art. But you like Dominic Thiem and watching him play? Yeah. I like I like Stan's one-handed backhand. That's like the one that I like. The rest of them, I feel I I don't know. It just looks like a lot of flailing to me. That's what I think when I see Tsitsipas play, especially when he plays Dennis. I cannot watch it. Mm. It just looks like I don't know. See, I actually like enjoy watching him play. I think what you object to and what you've said to me is the the is this a correct word or terminology the the herky jerkiness? Is that a thing? Yes, yes. It's very spasmic. Yes, and. Uh, incongruent with a lot of the fluidity that we we expect from the one-handed backhand and players of that aesthetic ilk right Mm -hmm. it's very effortless fluid fluid he's more kind of fidgety just in his game give me a two-hander with a wonderful follow-through over the person's right ear like lena lena's two-handed backhand why would you need anything else (laughs) i mean i know variety is the spice of life but like give give two-handers their due Thank you for that question, Stuart. Yinka asks, at 95 underscore Yinka, once Venus and Serena retire, what do you think their relationship and potential involvement with the sport will be? That's a good question. I don't see them reseeding in the way that Steffi Graf did. No. But I also don't really see them doing commentary or coaching, like the typical post-tennis jobs for no. a lot of top players. Honestly, it made me laugh when I read this question again because it's like, well, what is their relationship with tennis now? Sir, I mean, Serena plays, I don't know how many tournaments she plays per year now. Eight, probably. Mm. Eight or nine. Her relationship with tennis at this point as an active player is minimal. Most of the press she does now is outside of tennis. She's very invested in her businesses. I could see them making some ceremonial appearances. Um, but at the same time, they have 
played way, way longer than they thought they would. Mm -hmm. There's something that draws them to the sport in this world that I could see them wanting to hold on to. I can see them doing exhibitions all over the place. Mm. A, because they'll be getting paid. (laughs) And that is very important. Yeah. So you'll still see them playing tennis. Venus especially, I think she will be playing tennis till she's no longer able to walk. Yeah, yeah. And so if she can get in a court and have some fun in a setting that's safe for her, you know, that Mm. makes her feel good in that, you know, the people that she's with, she feels comfortable. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I can see her doing it all the time. But as far as being in the commentary booth or just being around the game, shooting the shit with all the other tennis folks, which they all do. Like, Mm. so many of the greats and even the not-so-greats hang around in some way or another. Partly because what do they do after tennis but find a job in tennis? You know, you you probably don't need the money. What do you do? Probably don't need the money, but you still want to be making some money. And Mm. so that's what you do. These two women don't need to be doing that. Venus could just be going to get degrees the rest of her life. And Serena will be on HLN every every other week. Or the... That's headline news. QVC? QVC, Home Shopping, HSN. HSN, yes. (laughs) Miss Brianna, Miss Bri, at For the Tennis. mm -hmm. She wants to know, when did James exactly decide to accept Sloane Stevens as his lord and savior? (laughs) I don't recall attending the Sloane Pentecost. Like, I don't recall accepting the Holy Sloane Spirit. I can tell you exactly when it was, when she posted... (laughs) One of her photo sets, and you're like, yes. it's a shame for someone to be that beautiful or something like that. No, I like said, is it, is it fair? Is it rude to look this good? She looked amazing. I didn't want to be seen as a Sloan hater. I'm not trying to get blocked. Because I got blocked by Darko Gernkrov, and I'm still mad. Because now he has this other account called Cooking with Darko, and I can't see it. <laughs> it's like he is pre... I've never said anything nasty about him. I don't know if that's true. Well, not on Twitter. <laughs> That's all you got to say? That's all. I I mean, I just don't remember. So the you're conversion. saying it was lip service that you were paying to like keep them? No, I don't think that complimenting someone means that you have a, accepted them as your personal Jesus. Okay. Sorry, Brie. Julian at Hold My Racket asked a question about appearance fees. He says, what's up with supplemental appearance fees given out by tournaments? The lack of transparency on this front always kills me. How much? To whom? How is it decided? Is there a way to find out? Indeed. In the research that I did, it seems that it's still a bit sketchy and underground, unless it's not. (laughs) Like in some situations, you have tournaments openly courting players. Um, Vienna, for example, practically dangled this multi-year deal with appearance fees in front of Nadal, like in public. You know, he actually spoke to media and said, we want him to come and we will pay. So some tournaments are quite open about it, and others... It's very underground. Apparently, it seems like in the kind of pre-2000s era, it was the Wild West as far as appearance fees. Um, On the WTA, it was still officially against the rules. There was a point in the late 90s that Steffi Graf was actually under investigation by the WTA for accepting appearance fees, which now seems absurd. And you imagine that everyone... Every top player back then probably took appearance fees, but they may have called it something different. In 2010, the WTA officially permitted players to accept appearance fees openly. Previously, it would be called something like fees for promotional activity. So the player would have to do all these things in order to earn this fee on top of playing, uh, when everyone knew it was an appearance fee. So the WTA sanctioned it at all WTA levels obviously except for the Grand Slams, which are run by the ITF and Fed Cup. On the ATP side, tournaments uh, at the 250 level or 500 level are allowed to offer appearance fees. Masters and Grand Slams are not allowed. Now, there are rumors that the Australian Open offered appearance fees in the 1970s, which I have not been able to substantiate, but it would make sense because so many of the top players did not make it down there back in the 70s and 80s. But these days, it's kind of uh, de rigueur. Like, everyone knows they exist. You don't always know how much and at which tournaments. But it is a good bet that if you are a top, let's say, top 10 in the WTA and you're playing a two, uh, an international or a premier level, 
there might be an appearance fee involved. And if you're like Serena Williams, who plays so few tournaments these days, or Venus, if you're going to Auckland. Or when Venus went to Kaohsiung. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like an inaugural event. It's not just like, oh, I want to help grow the game. And when you look and you see all these players who have an association, a long association with one particular smaller tournament, like Federer and Hollow, he could go play another grass tune-up any year he wants, but he won't because he has a long-term standing contract yes, with the tournament. Of course. And so when you can see a long-term association with a player in an event, that's probably what's going on. Nadal actually had a multi-year deal with Basel. Uh, Serena famously, one year after winning Wimbledon, went and played in Bastad and won on clay. <laughs> Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, since she won the tournament, that could be seen as a huge payoff for the tournament. You also have situations where a player accepts an appearance fee and either gives in a poor effort or just loses in the first round. Jack Sock, for example, last year the Auckland tournament announced that it would not be paying his $100,000 appearance fee because he didn't put forth his best effort in his first match. What goes through somebody's mind? You're just getting $100,000 to show up. Yeah. Well, he thought he just had to show up. And you're like, I just can't be arsed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there was actually an an instance uh, during Stan's comeback where he offered to return the appearance fee to Marseille after he lost in his first match. In the case of Nadal and Basel, he hasn't been able to play a few of those years. Mm. And so you don't always get the return on your investment. Now, there are so many tournaments around the world, and on the ATP side, there are already so many mandatory tournaments that the top players are going to pick a very limited number of smaller tournaments to show up to. You know, some of the 500s are going to be obvious, like Barcelona, for example, some of the more venerated tournaments. But if you're a tournament like Marseille or Lyon or some of these summer clay tournaments, for example, how do you get players there? So appearance fees make sense, but is it fair to the other players in the field who didn't think they would have to face Roger Federer in this small tournament? And is that even a reasonable question on my part? I don't know. You know, if you're eligible to play, you can play anywhere. I think maybe the appearance fee should be prorated. Like you get a portion for showing up. You get another portion Mm. bonus reaching certain levels. And say if you crash out in the first or second round, then that money should still be guaranteed to be divvied up to everybody else who's in the field. Now, Julien Beneteau talked about this on that famous radio appearance last fall, where he, some say, threw some shade at Roger Federer throughout, saying that, you know, Federer didn't want to play Rotterdam, for example. The tournament scrounged up a massive appearance fee for him to play, and he ended up winning. Um, The other accusation is that a place like the Paris Masters event which does not give appearance fees, but will say, how do we get Roger to play this year? Because he's played so long that it's no longer mandatory that he plays every Masters. Apparently, the Paris Masters reached out to Federer's camp and said, how do we get him here? Allegedly. What, allegedly. And one of the suggestions, allegedly, was speed up the court. So those are the, that's where things get really shady, right? Like, that seems like against the spirit of fair play, more so than appearance fees, in my opinion. Do you think that there is a negative slant towards appearance fees? Well, yeah, because I think in general it puts more money in the hands of people who already have a lot of money. At the same time, this could be helping support tournaments in smaller cities, allowing fans to see tennis where they normally might not. It, you know, realistically, it does keep a lot of tournaments afloat, getting these top players. As you might imagine, in this current tennis political climate, we got a lot of questions about Mr. Gimmelstab. Mm-hmm. We kind of put them all together here. A couple of them were very similar in the vein of if Gimmelstab keeps his seat or loses it, but still gets to work in tennis in some capacity, what can fans do to show the ATP we aren't okay with it? And that came from Caitlin Cummins-Goings. A fellow Canadian. Brennan Marshall as well asked what kind of substantive actions can we as fans take to have our voices heard and to instigate change with regard to Gimmelstab. I love signing a good petition or (laughs) peeing into the wind, that is Twitter, but then 
You can cancel Tennis Channel membership, but how effective would that be? So along the same lines, what, for people who are upset and aggrieved by this Gimel Stop situation, what sort of real actions can we take? These are things that we have been thinking about in our own household, and I don't know, I tend to be more cynical about boycotts in general, uh, because they're basically about organizing people who can afford to protest by deciding to divert their money somewhere else. But a boycott of Tennis Channel can probably have a pretty big effect if it's in numbers big enough to be noticed. The thing that really dooms a network is when sponsors start to pull out. So how do you make that happen? Bad press is usually what motivates sponsors to disappear. So how do you generate bad press when so much of the press is ignoring it? Because of what you just described, if I'm listening to you and I'm then trying to make deductions, I then say, well, you find out what are the, the companies that advertise on Tennis Channel and you go and you, you target them. It's possible that a lot of those luxury brands that are advertising on Tennis Channel won't care. It, but, right. you know, part of protest and this kind of activism, if you want to say, is about making yourself feel better as well. And I don't discount that as a net positive. <laughs> because in yeah. truth, like you need something to fuel yourself to keep the conversation going because mm -hmm. it can get a bit defeatist. It can feel defeatist. And so you might want to to sit there and say, well, you know, protests don't work. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. But, you know, it's still adding something. Well, and with social media now, what has been shown to work is like constant shaming, actually tagging all these sponsors, the network, anything that like drums up really ugly PR can be effective. And with this specific issue, we have to find a way to get this issue outside of the tennis niche market. Mm -hmm. Because that's I, that's what I feel the ATP board and Tennis Channel and the powers that be who want to have this go away are banking on. Right. That so because was... tennis is so niche, we can piss into the tennis Twitter wins as much as we want, but it really won't go anywhere. We're really just peeing on ourselves. <laughs> right? Well, that's what the metaphor means. Okay, yes. Uh, but if we're able to somehow break through that and have the coverage become more mainstream where, you know, a dead spin is, is writing something really cutting and it's being circulated more widely that people are reading and then it can pick up some more steam, maybe through the petition that people have going around, you, you never know. I don't have a concrete answer to this question. I like, this is not my expertise. It's not my, this is not my bag. The plain truth is that what is required is for people who are more powerful than Gibbon Staub to start speaking up. Those people are players. Mm -hmm. Andy Murray finally did today. Um, Emily Moresmo, Judy Murray. Like, we're not talking about Justin's peers at the Tennis Channel. We're talking about people who are actually more powerful than the network, Tennis.com, and the leagues. And those are active players. That's, that's the labor. And those are the people who actually are making the money for the sport. We had a, a private discussion with somebody about who, who can be that person, right? To really end this, to end him, or to put this issue to bed, right? <laughs> to stop this mess. Or just to like open people's eyes. Mm -hmm. Like, hello, like yeah. how many chances does one person need? And really the Is there no one else who is qualified to do these types of jobs in tennis? The person who could easily get this done is Serena Williams. Right. But, you know, my first reaction to that is like, why? Mm -hmm. You know, why, again, does a black woman have to do this type of labor for all of us to just fix it for us? Agreed. <laughs> I don't know if that answered any of your questions. <laughs> I would just say keep at it. We got a last-minute submission from Shari Rampenthal via email, right under the buzzer, wanting to know about the culpability of Billie Jean King for the metastasis, my word metastasis, of Justin Gimmelstab throughout tennis. That was the gist of the question. She cited Billie Jean's inaction when uh, he said all those horrible, sexist, misogynistic things about Kornikov and a whole host of WTA players. And uh, we weren't around for that in real time on tennis Twitter. I can't even recall if I knew about it in the moment because I don't think I followed yes. tennis outside of just tuning in on TV at that time. So I went back and did some research about what was the stuff that was said 
in articles, blogs, and whatever at that time. And I have to say that I kind of agree with with Shari to an extent. I don't think that Billie Jean is responsible for what we are seeing now or the fact that he's still around. But to say that she was negligible and derelict in her duty in the position that she held in tennis and society writ large at the time, I think is absolutely true. Well, it's more insidious than that, right? Like, it's not about culpability to me. It's about this is some guy that you know who's been in tennis for a long time. He's probably nice to you. He has charisma. And when he said this horrible stuff, he went to Billie Jean King to kiss the ring. But it's even more insidious than that because he had just signed on to be part of, I think, the Washington Castles, which was a (laughs) team on world team tennis, which is Billie Jean's brainchild yes and and Alana her Klaus, partner her partner was the ceo of world team yes. tennis at the time so not only is billy jean being called upon to opine on this situation as the matriarch of modern political action in sport and the the agitation for women's equality in sport right mm-hmm. she has that overarching position in tennis and society she's called upon to deal with it from with wearing that hat but then she also has to balance the hat of protecting her own interest and the world team tennis And we can see how that conflict, again, shockingly, another conflict in tennis could have swayed her into the direction of inaction or in a way that she would have likely spoken out more had it been somebody else who had stepped a foot wrong. Mm. And so what had happened was Ilana Kloss and the world team tennis suspended Justin for one game without pay. (laughs) One game, yeah. One game. And if you want to be doubly cynical, you can say, well, what even is world team tennis to be not, you know, like what even is world team tennis to not make a bigger statement? Like, what are you protecting? Right. Like, is it really consequential who wins at the end of the season? Uh, Isn't it more about like entertainment? And I thought that it was an extension of her brand of inclusivity in tennis. Yeah. That was just me. So... I mean, at this point, when people are asking Billie Jean to say something about the situation, initially I was like, why? You know, I just felt like she didn't need to comment on everything. That there are people that I'm looking to before Billie Jean about the situation. But looking back to what happened in 2008, I get it. It was the one-game suspension and then making a donation to the Women's Sports Foundation, which Billie is very much affiliated with. Yeah. And... Subsequent to that, you can find any number of videos of Billie Jean, Ilana, and Justin on set discussing World Team Tennis on Tennis Channel. Mm. It's like that relationship was not at all soured or diminished because of what Justin said. It's, it's surprising, given who Billie Jean King is. That's all. Now, I do not want to become a single-issue podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> there has been a lot about this situation, I want to move on to Tyler Green's question. He is at Tyler Green Books on Twitter. Which women should the ATP be recruiting to run for its board? You'd like the assumption that's embedded in that question? It wasn't, should there be women on the board? It's, which women should be on the board? Judy Murray pointed out to some troll. I mean, Judy Murray must respond to every mention. Some lunatic alt-right person with no avatar photo added her and she said, well, There are plenty of men in the highest ranks of WTA leadership. So why shouldn't there be women on ATP leadership? Or at the very least, why couldn't there be? Right. Because the default assumptions when you see even floating the idea of women in the highest levels of leadership in male sports, it's like, well, huh? What? They don't know anything about men's sports. I think for a large number of folks, it doesn't... And it's they don't not think even, that it's even a possibility that like, it's not allowed. Like, <laughs> can that... But can a woman be right. on the ATP board? You know, that kind of thinking. Exactly. It's not even, like, mean-spirited, but it's so embedded in our culture, it's malignant. So anyway, who would I elect to the ATP board? Judy Murray. Judy Murray? Oh, I mean, who knows more about men's tennis who is not a man than Judy Murray? Not only did she raise Andy Murray and Jamie Murray to be world beaters, but she also transformed tennis, grew tennis, from the grassroots in Scotland, right? Like, she created Scottish mm-hmm. tennis. Talk about, I mean, I can't think of a better advocate for players in governance than Judy Murray. And you'll be able to have 
tea and biscuits and crumpets while you while you're at the meetings. She'll bring all kinds of baked goods. You know Judy loves her sweets. <laughs> the other clear choice is Amelie Moresmo, who who really has accepted a role of kind of a moral leader in tennis uh, very naturally. It's not like she's uh, she's campaigning for anything. No. It's just like when she sees something, she points it out. But we saw we we're seeing now the fruition of the groundwork that she laid from her coming out and living out loud mm. as a as a teenager, right? Like yeah. the fear that you're able to cast aside from living the, her life the way she did back then, it doesn't allow you these kinds of apprehensions about wading into waters. Yeah. You know, like you have that certainty about who you are. Like you're so fully developed and comfortable in yourself that, you know, you know who you are and you speak to your opinions and we happen to agree with them. Mm. You know, if this were 30 years ago, I would say Gladys Heldman, number one. I'm also sure that there are a lot of women outside of tennis who would be just as qualified to serve in one of these positions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, maybe get a different look. Maybe get somebody who came up in a different sport. Somebody who can whip these little boys into shape. (laughs) We got a question from at ArcKnight12. What tournaments would you add, remove, upgrade, or relocate? Would personally love to see the WTA finals in Prague and the Seoul tournament bumped up to a premiere. Maybe also cut Madrid for a Grass 1000 slash Premier Mandatory. 100% Grass Masters event and Premier Mandatory joint event somewhere in Northern Europe or the UK. Cut Madrid, cut Paris Masters. Boring. Madrid doesn't have the cachet of the other European clay tournaments, in my opinion. Hamburg no longer has a Masters tournament when it became Madrid. It's just not the same. The conditions are not the same. I don't know. As far as bumping up a tournament, I would, and this might suck because it's a a WTA event, but if we're looking to think outside of the box and and find a a tournament or a location that can host a big, because that's one of the considerations, right? You have to have an event and a, a, a site that's big enough and has enough grass courts to be able to host an event of this this magnitude, mm. right? And while Mallorca doesn't have the the facilities at the moment, if we can have a tournament spring up on grass in Mallorca, maybe we can have somebody build toward investing in grass court tennis. Maybe the Spanish want to start getting better on, on grass. <laughs> and so the Spanish Tennis Federation invests in like a multi-grass court facility in Mallorca and we can bump that up to the Masters tournament. Yeah. It doesn't have to be in Britain with that Halle, London, Queen's Club swing leading up into Wimbledon, right? Mm. But absolutely get rid of Madrid. (laughs) I would personally love to see a Masters event in South America. It is a very underserved market in so many sports. Yes. But to look at the the history of Argentine tennis, especially, and to see that Buenos Aires is the biggest tournament that they have, why not put either a Clay Masters 1000 there or just a really like a premier event? Invest money in South America. I would also get rid of Paris. We have two Masters events that we can get rid of. We can play with right. Madrid the and Paris. Is at the end of the season, do you just get rid of it completely and end the season early or replace it? You move it. Because they're back to Europe again you at move the it. end. Move it where? I, I, I'm, I'm not being paid <laughs> I know. to come up with those things. I just want to get rid of it, mm-hmm. okay? For cities that already have a Grand Slam, you don't need another Masters. No. I'd be up to upgrading Charleston as well. I was thinking that too, yeah. But do you lose some of that kind of hometown charm? I don't know, that like southern hospitality thing by making it too big? Well, this is more like a bumping it up. So it becomes mm. like a premier mandatory where more players go. It can still handle that. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like you maybe mm. increase the field a little bit and you get better players there. I'm not trying to make it like a joint event. Yeah. But that that tournament has shown that it it's withstood the test of time. And I think Courtney Nguyen had tweeted out while she was in Charleston this year that it's a testament to the, the to the organizers and the site and the location that so many players want to come back every year given the placement of the event on the calendar. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to stick around after the Sunshine Double Swing 
whereas most players have already headed off to get their red red clay tennis preparations underway. Like yeah. there's no real incentive to stay in America for this tournament, this little old tournament, other than it's so great. Alice Johnson at Alice Jasmine asks, who are your favorite tennis writers and your favorite Rafa look? We had, we agree on this one, so you can take it yeah. away. Uh, my favorite tennis writer, writer currently is Louisa Thomas, who writes for New Yorker. She wrote for Grantland before its demise. Frank DeFord, famous Sports Illustrated writer, has written so much great stuff about tennis over the years. Tennis is sort of a receding from the spotlight and also the end of a lot of great sport publications has resulted in just a lot of great creative nonfiction in that old 60s and 70s vein is just not getting done. Mm-hmm. Frank DeFord in his heyday was exceptional. Frank DeFord in his twilight, not so much. Mm. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> and we, we enjoy reading Steve Tenor. Yeah, yeah, I like him. As for Rafa, the best Rafa look, we agree that it's the 09 Australian Open night kit. Absolutely. An iconic kit. In Rafa's uh, like later Nike years, I feel like a lot of it kind of bleeds together. Yes. I'm just having trouble like identifying a favorite because they look really similar. Peter at TyGuy84 asks, Since it's a given, Gimmelstab's little finger, you coined that on our last episode, who would you cast? I did? Yes, you did. Oh, I didn't even remember that. You did that. I just assumed someone else did. Who would you cast for everyone else on Game of Thrones? <laughs> this was a tough one. It was a fun exercise. I started with Joffrey. And these days, Nick Kyrgios is Joffrey. It's just a straight <laughs> troll. Like, trolling every day of the week. It's what he does. Haphazard, not really having any point of view. Mm-hmm. Just... Trolling for trolling. Today he was throwing shade at Rafa's knee injuries and his quick recoveries. It's like, dude, not everybody is being a good Samaritan and like pushing somebody's car home on bad knees and eating McDonald's and playing basketball. Like some people actually, you know, rehab injuries. Yeah, that's or train or have a coach or take (laughs) shit seriously. There's just that. I got a kick out of this Bran. You know, people think of Bran as this wholesome stuff. Life just threw him for a loop out the window and literally (laughs) he had a lot of bad stuff happen to him and he's a sympathetic character a character that everybody should love you don't why should everybody love him he is so annoying nobody likes bran he's self-righteous he's awkward i mean that is the burden of knowing the entire history of the universe having it in your mind right it must be very depressing. You have here that you have <laughs> Stefanos Tsitsipas as brand. Yeah. <laughs> I just get a vibe, you know? I submit that either Andy Mori or Judy Mori could play Olena. Olena Tyrell. Andy in yeah. drag or just Andy as mm. Andy? <laughs> she talked a lot of shit. She said whatever the hell she wanted, which and is the sense that I get from Andy. And uh, Andy wants you to know that he was the one who poisoned Nick Kyrgios. Tell Cersei it was me. (laughs) (laughs) No, that would make a great narrative arc over eight seasons Mm -hmm. to find out by season six or season seven that it was, despite all the friendliness that went on in the first few seasons, it was really Andy Murray who poisoned (laughs) Nick Curious. Daenerys. I see. I think that Chris Evert is Daenerys Targaryen because. She's a little bougie. Uh, there was a sense that this was ordained. Okay. And, you know, when Chris Ebert invaded tennis, she just started winning from the jump. As a young girl, a 16-year-old, slaying every which way. She's got, like, the Ice Princess thing going on about her. Okay, I And can see I don't it. know. I think, you know, Daenerys and Chrissy are killers. Brienne, Kai Kanepi. <laughs> Which is a bit rude on our part because it's like a physical comparison. Right, because mo- these are more personality comparisons yeah. we're making. Arya Stark is like the most fun one. One of our favorite characters. I initially picked Putin Seva only because I could see Putin Seva having a kill list. <laughs> <laughs> but instead we kind of settled on Martina Hingis, which I don't really know how... That was a tough one. Well, Martina has that like puckish rebellious charm about her 
a little prickly. Well, actually, very prickly back then. Charm, you say? Well, for some people. <laughs> but I could definitely see her having a list of enemies in, like, 1998. Jon Snow, he who knows nothing, Grigor Dimitrov. Got mm. the looks. I don't know, I just don't get that one. You don't Aside get Aside from the looks, because to me, I don't know. I don't think that Jon is the most well-written character. I think he's too good. Yeah, I mean, like, who is who on the men's side is, like, one of the more unproblematic faves at this point. Okay, sure. Good-looking and unproblematic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's slim pickings, Jim. <laughs> That's true. That is very true. I just called you Jim. <laughs> I call him Jim. Everybody else knows him as James. <laughs> Cersei Lannister. This one was tough. I just don't want to do that to anybody. And if a we lot have of to Game of Thrones it, characters are evil. Yeah, but, but if we have to do that to somebody, it'd be Margaret Court. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's like the wicked one who nobody wants to hang out with. I mean, this was tough. I, I, I honestly can't come up with a whole lot more than what we did. So you send us your suggestions for Sansa, for... For Jamie Lannister. For Varys. I want to know who Varys is. For Sam. <laughs> okay, back to a tennis question. Francisco Vargas Carranza, who is at Franceschi59, asked, do you think any young player less than 20 years old on the WTA can make a sizable dent this season? So we're going to cheat a little bit because Bianca Andreescu has already made a huge dent. Mm-hmm. She's still only 18 years old, winning Indian Wells. But for the other young women, under 20, my vote is Marketa Vandrusova, who she's got 13 wins so far this year, and a lot of these are very impressive wins. So she is currently in the Istanbul final. When this episode comes out, we will know whether or not she won versus Petra Martic. She is provisionally at a career high number 43 at age 19. She's beaten Simona Halep this year. Ostapenko twice, Streetsova, Elise Mertens, and Daria Kazatkina. It seems like you know, people have been talking about her for a while, but the, these past few months she's been quietly putting together a hell of a run. And uh, the other three young women to keep an eye on, Yastremska, Sviantek, and my pick would be Anisimova. Mm. Like if somebody in that group has the, the star power, right? Mm-hmm. The Swing Volley asks... Which athletic clothing company should break into tennis? I like this question. Yeah. And I'm going to say what I always say. I've said it many times on the podcast. Puma needs to come back to tennis. Serena Williams Puma kits are some of the best I've ever seen. For a brand that hasn't been to tennis yet, I would say Diesel should branch out into tennis. Really? Yeah. Diesel makes some really cool shoes. I just bought two pair. (laughs) (laughs) My other choice is Ivy Park which is Beyonce's oh athletic wear. Because why not? Like, who wouldn't want to wear Beyonce's stuff? The Big Joker, another one of the under-the-wire questions. Who are your favorite non-tennis athletes? This one we really enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, for me, the only current one that I have is Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, who is a Jamaican track athlete. And one of my all-time favorites, I've said this before on the podcast, Merlene Otte, a track god. And from the cricketing world... Brian Lara for me. Mm. I also had Shelly Ann Fraser-Price on my list. And my other one is Simone Biles. Because Simone Biles. Ooh, and also from figure skating, Surya Bonali, mm-hmm. growing up. Huge fan. Michelle Kwan. Mm-hmm. Philippe Candeloro. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and LeBron James. Yeah, who knew if you had asked me 10 years ago if I'd have been a LeBron stan, I would not have been that person. No. Like, I thought that... After the decision? The decision made my decision permanently. <laughs> and But it, not so. Not in this day and age. I stand LeBron James with a flag flying high. <laughs> we can always rely on Dr. Scholes at Scholes Talks 10S. Play on tennis. Tennis. Mm-hmm. Got it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's called a pun. To submit an F. Mary Kill for us. This one is topical. And it's tougher than previous ones. His F. Mary kill is Christian Garin, Benoit Paire, and Fabio Fognini. So I'll go first. No, you always go first with Fine. this one. Okay. For me, you fuck Garin because he's very... Well, have you seen him? Exactly. You marry Benoit Paire. This one's an easy one because you're guaranteed, guaranteed 
a hefty divorce settlement provided you don't sign a prenup within a couple of years. Because there will be philandering. <laughs> We're thinking long term here. Mm. And then you kill Fonini because, I mean, the list of reasons why is endless. I mean, let me, so let me start with the kill. I could never live with Fonini. I, I mean, the first smart-ass remark, I would probably get a knife and kill him. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I actually have the same ones. Garin is the obvious choice. Benoit Pair, I guess, for lack of better options, I would have to marry Ben. We could stay in separate rooms. I, I'm sure you would get to travel a lot. He, I, I'm sure, is at least a little bit interesting. As is his reputation, well, I would like I would most, definitely shave the beard in his sleep. He's the we most interesting man in, in the world. If you listen to some people, <laughs> I thought that was Yanko Tipsarovich. Oh my god, he reads philosophy. Did you hear? Tipsarovich. Oh my god, I just went back and reread Lindsay Gibbs's fabulous piece from Sports on Earth: How How to Talk About Women's Tennis. And in that piece, one of the screenshots is one of Tipsarovich's tweets. Mm. Something like six love, six love, Serena Williams, hashtag equal pay. Like that is right. the scum of the earth, piece of shit, highbrow thinking that we're dealing with here. So when you come at me with this whole, oh my God, he's so interesting. He reads books. He's a philosopher. He's got so many good things to say. Let's just be clear that some of the things he has to say are bottom of the barrel and non-starters. <laughs> so there's that. So I'm supposed to finish this with a question for you. Yes. And I feel like I know most of what there is to know about you. So it was hard to come up with a question. Okay. My question, I guess, because I want to know the answer is... So this is something you don't know the answer to? No. No, it's more of like, well, I'll ask. I'll just ask it. Where do you see tennis in 20 years? Oh, my God. Like, is there another Grand Slam tournament? Do the leagues still exist as we know them? Are there players' unions? Uh, it's a terrible question. It's just asking for pure conjecture. Yeah, you know you know how much I hate that stuff. Well, it was your idea. <laughs> you made me do it. Uh, tennis will still be around. I think the, the bones of the game will still be around. Like, the, the way the game is played is not going to change drastically, I don't think. We're going to have tweaks over the years. Obviously, we have, folk, we have people clamoring for some now. But the history of tennis is so great that the, the, the structure of Grand Slam tennis, I don't think, will change that much. Mm. Like, I, I think the need for continuity with the history and the record books will, will ensure its survival, right? Like, we might have some playing around with the game on a week-to-week basis on the regular tour because we might be hitting a tipping point with players' bodies and the mm. actual survival of the product because of, you know, the players themselves not being able to survive. Yeah. Long-term. Like the limits the of limits. the actual human body. Yes. <laughs> right. And what is being asked of these players on a week-to-week basis. So I think we'll see a lot of measures come into play to, to, to alleviate the wear and tear on players throughout the course of the year. And that may come in the form of relaxed requirements on the number of tournaments that they have to play, a reduction of the schedule maybe. But there's always going to be a friction between that, the people in that camp, and the people who want to make money off of tennis. Mm. Because when folks come with this idea about the survival of tennis and, and the... The, the sanctity of the sport and the purity of the sport. Keep in mind, those things are, those decisions about that are always driven by money. And so tennis will survive as long as people are making money off of it. And I think it will. The circuitous answer, I don't know. No, what. I think that was a pretty good answer, actually. Oh. Especially off the cuff. Yeah. Thank you. Do you think that any of the current Grand Slams will be overthrown and there will be one like in Asia or? somewhere else i think we could have another one added i don't think ah, okay. any of the ones that are existing will seed ground or give up that cash cow and it's well, <laughs> easy right. i mean there's so much money in grand slam tennis that it would be a serious dereliction of duty for the leaders of those tournaments to allow that to happen mm. uh, but if the itf can find ways to make m- m- hundreds of millions of dollars more from creating another grand slam tournament absolutely 
there might be six Grand Slams in 20 years. <laughs> what we could see is having like a, a strict division between two tours where the really top players, say the top 100, exist on like a Grand Slam level with those four events, four or five events, and like a, a, a select few others. And then what we know as like the ITF or the Challenger circuit being elevated but being more of a, a, a more highly paid minor leagues and a stricter separation between the two. That might ele- mm. that might alleviate some of the, the year-round playing pressures on the top players. Mm. Good answer. All right, that, that is the end of our Reader Mailbag episode. We, uh, we are probably, not currently now, but when you're listening to this, we are probably in Spain, maybe? Mm. <laughs> in Barcelona or Sitges, on our way back to Rome for the tennis in a couple days. Thanks for listening. As always, you can find the, the podcast on Twitter at the Body Serve. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. And we uh, we look forward to episode 158 where we will have a verdict on Gimmelstop. We, we will yeah. we will be in Rome the day it happens. On May 14th. The vote will happen yeah. in Rome on May 14th, we will be in Rome, not in press, but we will be on site. We have tickets for tennis that day, and uh, there'll be lots to talk about. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.